today's program made possible by patrons like you. Welcome to where we celebrate music from the movies. From the golden age to present day, we've got it all covered. We talk to those in the entertainment industry and find out about their favorite scores. You found the podcast, What's the Score? I'm your host, Frank R. Wilson. So sit back, relax, grab a popcorn, and let's see what we'll be hearing today. Our guest has been committed to the film industry for several decades. Uh, He's been a unit publicist, producer, writer, director, and actually an author of several books on uh, film history. I came to know him as the author of the James Bond movie encyclopedia, uh, which is actually originally written in 1990, but actually has a new version of it just released here recently. He updated it uh, recently, and... And I can't recommend it highly enough for any Bond film, or for that matter, any film fan that would be interested in in the making of movies. I hope all of you will please join me in welcoming Steve Rubin to the program. Welcome to the program, Steve. Um, Appreciate you being with us today. Great to be here, Frank. Happy New Year. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, As I want to do on a lot of our programs, I always like to learn a little bit more about our guests and their in their background, uh, especially the early years, if if you will. So I'd be kind of curious if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself in terms of, uh, you know, growing up, family, uh, things that kind of helped shape you in your early years and those sorts of things, if you wouldn't mind sharing that with us. Oh, absolutely. I'm a Chicago native. Uh, my father, though, did not like the winters. Uh, you Midwesterners are, are a strong, you know, group and, um, uh, you know, it's funny, I'm calling you a Midwesterner, but you're in Baton Rouge. What am I saying? <laughs> uh, anyway, Midwesterners are generally a strong, a strong group, uh, hardy folk. And um, my father's brother had started a company in Southern California. So he decided to move west following that great Horace Greeley advice. That's what we did. And I arrived in Southern California, the land of the sun, land of Hollywood. I think I think it's interesting if I had stayed in Chicago, I don't know if I would have gotten involved in the film business. Obviously, being out here, you you, you discovered via osmosis. Um, the second apartment we lived in on a street called Lapeer uh, Avenue in Los Angeles uh, was about, I'd say, 200 yards from a movie theater. Uh, I kind of grew up across the street from the Fox West Coast uh, Stadium Theater. And in those days, uh, they would run their matinees on Saturdays, what they called the kitty matinees. And uh, they would feature science fiction, fantasy, and horror titles. So I got exposed to all the great 
science fiction films, even ones that had been released years before, like the day, like the day the Earth stood still, and Forbidden Planet, and then newer ones like The Blob, uh, and then B movies like a lot of the Roger Corman movies, the drive-in titles like Terror, mm. Terror from the Year Five Thousand, The Incredible, uh, well, Incredible Shrinking Man was an A-list title, uh, but the all those kinds of films. And I was very much uh, just became a movie lover in a family of movie lovers. I, I was an only child, but my parents loved to go to the movies. So not only did I go to the movies on Saturdays, but my parents would take me to uh, adult movies and uh, well, adult movies in those days, <laughs> if they weren't kiddie movies, they were adult movies, but I wasn't going to see porn. If that's what it sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think that's important for our listeners to understand, especially for those of, of them that are, Younger listeners, I mean, it. going to the movies was an entirely different, oh gosh, how can I say this? Uh, you, you, your motivation for going to the movies and, and wanting to was entirely different than it is today. I mean, just because of the, my gosh, the, the options available to watch things today on, on, uh, on television through the internet and what, or cable or whatever. And, and people with, you know, the projection TVs and those sorts. I mean, it's an entirely different world than it was in the 1950s. And I, I, I'd be curious if you could share that with our listeners to help them understand, you know, look, I mean, if we were lucky, we got three channels on TV and there was only so much content you could do. So the movies was something that was, you know, big. It was different. It was, you know, it was, it was mind blowing, I guess, if you will. Kind of share that with our listeners a little bit about what it was like to have the movies as a, as an alternative to, to the early days of television. Well, it was a fascinating time. There were no distractions as kids. We played in the backyard or the front yard or in the street. And then our, our event to go to was the movies. So we had no internet. There was no video games. It's so funny. I was talking the other day about it to a friend of mine about toys. And I remember getting a, a, a toy one year called Thinkatron, which was a computer and question and answer game with little punch cards, like a, a baby IBM computer <laughs> toy from like 1959. It's kind of presaged the future of computers, but yeah, we didn't have those kinds. I mean, we go, we played miniature golf. Uh, we certainly played sports, but the movies was special. Also the kinds of movies we were seeing were fun movies. I mean, you know, yeah. Today, you go to the movies, and a lot of times it's reality stuff about what's happening in our world, and sometimes it's pretty depressing. It's very well made, but it's not what I call a popcorn movie, and I grew up in the era of popcorn movies. I mean, Hmm. we saw uh, so many different movies um, from roadshow-type movies like The Alamo. I remember going to a movie palace called the Carthay Circle to see The Alamo. Uh, then when Goldfinger came out in 1964, I was older, obviously I was 12 or 13. Um, I went to the Grauman's Chinese theater to as like an event type movie. Wow. Movies yeah. were just a big part of my life. And when I, when I went, I went to college, I, I studied history. I was always a big history buff. I like to read about, um, particularly military history. Uh, I was fascinated with the events of World War II. And growing up in the 50s, that was a big thing in literature and in comic books. You know, uh, 
some kids were reading Superman. I was reading Our Army at War and Our Fighting <laughs> Force, things like that. So when I got out of college, I had studied journalism. Uh, well, my, I, we didn't have a journalism department at UCLA by then, but I was a reporter for the Daily Bruin. And I kind of honed my interviewing skills. So I started interviewing filmmakers who made the great war pictures. And my first book published in 1981 was called Combat Films, American Realism, 1945, oh. 1970. I, mm-hmm. I interviewed about 30 or 40 filmmakers uh, about the classic films like The Longest Day and The Great Escape, Patton, uh, A Walk in the Sun, 12 O'Clock High, those kinds wow. of things. And then uh, I had started to write for Cine Fantastique magazine. Now, Cine Fantastique, for those of you who don't remember it or don't know, it was the first film uh, magazine to really delve into behind the scenes on the making of science fiction, fantasy. And oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I, I had kind of stumbled upon it. I used to drive, I ride my bike up to Larry Edmonds movie bookshop in Hollywood, which was kind of like the, the center of uh, movie culture in LA where you've got film stills and memorabilia and all the books and magazines. And I think the magazine caught my eye once because it had George Pal on the cover. And although I didn't know a lot of filmmakers, I remember George Pal's name from movies like the time machine and war of the world. So mm-hmm. I became a subscriber and then, I, I basically, my first breakthrough was I was interviewing Ted Sherdeman, who was a screenwriter who had written this World War II movie called Hell to Eternity with Jeffrey Hunter, which was the story of Guy Gabaldon, who was raised by Japanese Americans in Southern California. And when the Japanese were interned after Pearl Harbor, he joined the Marines and goes to Saipan, one of the bloodiest islands in the South Pacific and single-handedly captures 1,100 Japanese, one of the great feats of World War II. So during the course of my interview, he, uh, the writer stopped and said, he kind of reminds me a little bit of what I did on them. And when he said that, I kind of, it was like a jolt of electricity. Them, the movie about the giant ants in the New Mexico desert, which was a <laughs> seminal film I had seen at that stadium theater when I was eight. Uh, and and uh, he said, yeah. So I wrote a letter to Fred Clark, the editor of the magazine in Chicago, Cine Fantastique. I said, would you be interested in an interview with the writer of them? And Fred wrote enthusiastically back, of course. And can you also reach out to the director, Gordon Douglas? And my article was published in 74. But the big coup was I went over to Warner Brothers and I got into the still department and they opened the book t- uh, of the original key book of the stills, which featured behind the scene shots. And I was able to acquire three of them and no one, literally no one had ever seen a behind the scene shot on them. So when it came out in the magazine, there was kind of a a real cool reception, like a, not a cool reception, but a hot reception. And and, um, so Fred encouraged me to pursue other titles. And my next one was on Forbidden Planet. And that also got a lot of good uh, reaction. And then the third article I wrote on the day of the earth still became a cover story. And that was the most successful issue of the magazine up until that point. It sold more <laughs> copies. And I got, even got a fan letter from Leonard Malton. It was quite exciting to see all this stuff. And then I followed that with another cover story on War of the Worlds. Uh, which was also so I, I really got a lot of great feedback from my historical research, combining my journalism skills with my appreciation of film history. So but I wanted to branch out into something that was a little bit more, uh, you know, widespread. I, I, I love reaching, you know, a few people, but 
uh, I had become always been a big fan of the James Bond movies. And, um, and, I, we, and we want to get into that here in a moment. Yeah. So, I mean, right. you know, in listening to you talking, I mean, it, it, it's interesting since you and I are of a similar age, um, people today maybe don't have a, an appreciation. I mean, this wasn't a send an email and get a response in 24 hours. I mean, if, you know, or look up a website and instantly know, you know, who it was you needed to contact or something. I mean, this was, you had to do some real work in order to contact these people. And then you'd have to wait days, if not weeks in order to hear back from them. I mean, it was, it was an entirely different atmosphere you were working in versus what it was today. And I, I, you know, I'm just, I don't know. I just kind of, I'm kind of thinking about people listening to this that might be in their twenties, maybe in their thirties or whatever, and, and can't relate to the fact that it, you know, it was an entirely different journalistic world. You know, well, yeah, 30, exactly. 40 years ago. Oh, exactly. And all Hollywood has also been a, a very difficult um, arena to break into on any level. And even just, yeah. Even just talking to people, people assume that you walk on a film site and you can just start talking to the actors, and that just doesn't happen. But no, uh, no, 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 no. there's a pecking order, and there's a, there's etiquette involved, and reaching out to filmmakers to interview them is a big challenge. Now, I was very fortunate; I was able to get to Albert R. Broccoli, the producer of the James yeah. Bond movies, and uh, the producer of the James Bond movies, and he he. Uh, I guess I got Cubby, his nickname was Cubby, on a good day because I, not only did I get an interview with him talking about the Bond films, uh, but he introduced me to his stepson, Michael Wilson. And Michael, of course, has been producing with Barbara Broccoli, the Bond movies, for years. And I went over to London yeah. in 77, and I spent uh, a good part of the summer of 77 interviewing and acquiring research materials for my first book on the Bond films. Which- and Stephen, if, if, if you don't mind, I, I, I'm... I want to get into that in a little bit, if if you will, because I think that's an uh, you know a fascinating story. But in, in the interest of what the program is about with the uh, movie scores and those sorts of things, I'd I'd love to start sharing some of the uh, some of the cues that you wanted to share with our audience. Oh, absolutely! Um, I mean, film music for me is the poetry of the movies. I mean, I I, I love movie music more than anything. Well, and, 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 and again, because we come from a similar age, you know, these days you can, you know, you wait six months and you buy the Blu-ray or the DVD or whatever, and you can relive the movie all you want. But in our time, it's, if you wanted to relive the movie, really the only way you had to do it was to buy the soundtrack if it was available. I mean, do you concur with that? Oh, sure, sure. I mean, uh, the very first soundtrack I bought was almost five minutes after I saw the Alamo in 1960. I went out and bought, <laughs> yeah. I bought Dimitri Tiomkin's score. What a score, by the way. To this day, one of the great film scores. And, uh, I, you know, it's interesting because uh, I, my, my love of movies was just aided by just going out and get these musical soundtrack albums. You know, in those days, we had the 33... LPs and uh, to this day that music still stays with me. I mean, I have oh, yeah. I have movie movie music everywhere. I mean, I'm always playing it. Uh, I actually play the whole movie. In fact, uh, I think I told you once that I I, I discovered in in high school that uh, I bought a friend's tape recorder, uh, a reel to reel tape recorder, 
and I put a microphone next to the television. I started to record my own movies decades before DV, before uh, VHS and, you know, the popularization of DVD and Blu-ray. So I, yeah. I, I'm going to bed at night listening to the Alamo. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I know. I've been there, done that, got the T-shirt. I understand. One of the cues that you chose was from a film that I wasn't familiar with or a composer either. So I'm interested in hearing your thoughts about this. Uh, The film was called The Mountain Road. And and, and the composer is, um, hopefully I'm pronouncing this correctly, Jerome Morose. Actually, it's Morose, I believe. Morose. Excuse me. I, I apologize. Tell us a little bit about your uh, your uh, choosing that as amongst one of your favorites to include in your list today. Well, I'm sure all the soundtrack listeners are, are kind of scratching their heads now saying, uh, The Mountain Road? I mean, when you say <laughs> uh, the Jerome Ross, everyone talks about the big country, which, of course, we'll talk about a little bit later. But right. um, I have to say, and, and for those of you who don't know it, The Mountain Road is a World War II movie from 1960. It starred James Stewart, which is interesting because Jimmy Stewart did not appear in a lot of World War II movies. It was not subject uh, that he wanted to pursue because he had been a traumatized bomber pilot and squadron commander in World War II Europe. And he came out of the war very, very damaged by the war. Uh, so uh, this was unusual for him, but it's based on a Theodore H. White novel. It takes place in East China in 1944. An American demolition unit is uh, is uh, ordered to delay the Japanese advance. So they're going up a mountain road, blowing up bridges and parts of the road. And the, the <laughs> this is kind of an interesting thing that I I loved trucks gro- growing up. I think uh, it was one of those things that I just loved to. I loved to play with trucks. I liked to watch trucks in action. My dad would take me out to construction <laughs> sites. Uh, Jimmy Stewart commands a demolition demolition unit that consists of a jeep. Uh, one of those big, uh, you know, transport trucks, the big trucks, but he also had three little three quarter ton weapons carriers. And I fell in love with these little three quarter ton Dodge trucks. And I, I just uh, adored them. And when the movie came out and I saw them, I just remembered those trucks. So uh, I, I, that's part of the, you know, you have various reasons for loving movies over the year. But I'll tell you, one of the big reasons I love the movie is Maras's score because Jerome Maras no, never shrunk from bringing his A game to a film score. And I think that the mountain road has terrific music, music. We'll hear the overture. And, uh, it's, you know, like a lot of composers, he brought uh, what he felt was local, value to the score so since it takes place in china it has kind of an asian feel about it and it's just a full-throated morass score with some great cues isn't it fascinating i mean i mean listening to you talk about it it was i you're right music really is so powerful if it works with the film and in many cases it does sometimes it doesn't connect but it's amazing how that music takes you back to the film and what was going on at, at, at certain times. And it's just, it's so powerful. It's, it's so much of a strong connection. It's uh, it's magical. I mean, I, I don't know how else to explain it. Very true. Yeah. Well, let, let's have a listen to this. This is, uh, this is from the film, the mountain road. Uh, it's one of Steve's favorites and it's written by a composer, Jerome, excuse me, Jerome Morose. 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 
I'm sorry, goodness gracious. <laughs> but please sit back, listen, and enjoy. I had uh, I had cut you off, and I apologize for that. But I but I am kind of curious to explore this. Uh, you you've written several books, uh, historical books on uh, on filmmaking, which are you know just terrific. I mean, which is, and I love that sort of stuff. I really do. But but I have a certain affinity towards the James Bond films, and uh, you took it upon yourself to to write a historical. Uh, piece on the uh, James Bond film. So I'm kind of curious if you could let us know a little bit about the background on the, the uh, genesis of that and how that all came about. Sure. Well, um, it's it gone in two phases. The first book was called the James Bond films, a behind the scenes history, which was an historical uh, look at the making of the first, uh, first Bond movies up through, I think that went up through uh, Octopussy in 83. Uh, then I was approached. I have a copy. <laughs> there you go. There you go. And I, I was approached by another publisher after that book came out uh, to do an encyclopedia. They had this is contemporary books back in Chicago. They had a um, they had a uh, success with the Marilyn Monroe and Elvis Presley encyclopedias, and they said, "Could you do a one on James Bond?" So, you know, the James Bond films are a wonderful subject to put into an encyclopedia because there's so much information. Uh, whether it's the names of the villains, the actors who mm. played them, the, the women, the gadgets, the locations, the films themselves, uh, I just had so much fun. Excuse me, so much fun 
collecting information and then putting it together. But the big challenge to putting encyclopedia together is the illustrations because, you know, people open a book like this and they want to see what is a very visual series. So I spent uh, a large amount of time, especially over in England, finding rare materials. And then uh, I've done four editions. The latest edition came out in November 2020. Uh, I'm very proud of the latest edition because we have color for the first time. I also have some terrific contributions from illustrators like Brian May and Jeff Marshall, who've done some wonderful evocative paintings from the Bond movies. And uh, we have it updated through No Time to Die, which none of us have seen yet. I I got as much information as I could collect on the (laughs) latest Bond movies. And the studio actually gave me some shots as well. So I'm very, very happy with the latest book. And I continue to be a huge Bond fan, as most of us are. Yeah, and by the way, I, I, I can't emphasize enough how fabulous the work Steve has done on these on these books. And uh, the latest edition is, is no surprise. It's just an incredible piece of work, and I couldn't encourage uh, those of you that not only like James Bond films, but quite frankly are fans of film. Yeah, this is a must-have. You really must have this book. It's just absolutely fabulous. Thank you. Thank you for those kind words. Uh, I, I think you'll have fun with the book. And I have to say that my prose is kind of punchy, so it's not a dry book. It's certainly a book <laughs> you can just, just kind of pick up and just leaf through. You don't have to read it cover to cover. But I try to keep the, the entries fun, and you're going to learn a lot about the people involved with the Bond movies book. Anyway, I mean, uh, to move along with the uh, film scores that you had chosen, you also um, wanted to continue with the same composer uh, and, and, and talk about a movie that he also had, had done that was a, a great production. It was called The Big Country. Kind of tell us a little bit about your thinking of including that in your list of favorites. Well, that's the film that is most associated with Jerome Ross. I mean, The Big Country... Uh, was a Western from 1958. Uh, It's William Wyler directing, and William Wyler is kind of like putting the stamp of approval on a movie. One of our most honored film directors uh, directed The Best Years of Our Lives, and uh, uh, he did uh, Detective Story, and Mm -hmm. many, many great films. Uh, His his, uh, probably most honored film is Ben-Hur, which was released the following year. you know, this is a this is a score that is just pounding. It really, really just pounds at you in a good way, starting from the opening titles. And this, uh, I'm, I think, uh, actually, we're we're going to share a different cut. But this is a great score. I I owned it for many years in vinyl, and I would remembered the film, enjoyed the film, but I didn't realize that the vinyl album had only about thirty percent of the music. So when the D mm-hmm. When the CD came out with the full score, I just, uh, my jaw dropped. That I, I, I couldn't believe I hadn't heard these cues in so long. And um, I, I wanted to pick a cue, which is my favorite. We'll hear a little dialogue to begin with. Okay, well, let's, let's have a listen to that. This is, uh, this is from the film Big Country, again, written by uh, uh, Jerome Moross. And... Uh, uh, it's one of the favorites of uh, of our guest today, Stephen J. Rubin. Let's have a listen to this and sit back and enjoy. 
Major. Major. We'll get back to our program in a minute. This program is done for the love of film and film music, plain and simple. However, it does take a huge investment in time and in fees for me to make the program work for you. I don't sell commercial time and don't really want to on this program. Rather, I'm kind of like a, a public broadcasting station. I need support from listeners like you. For as little as $3 a month, you can help me uh, uh, offset the time spent in putting the program together. Or maybe you just think of it as leaving a tip in the tip jar. Either way, if you can join up, there will be bonuses, like an additional 10 to 15 minute segment with our guest every week, where we'll play additional cues as well as ask us some extra questions. And it's going to be only available to patrons. How do you sign up? Well, it's simple. You go to patreon.com slash what's the score, and that's all one word. That's Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash what's the score. Check it out. We'd be grateful for your support. That's Patreon.com. Well, let's dive in and uh, talk about another one of your uh, favorites that you included on your list, and we're talking about the uh, the film Spartacus. Well, Spartacus is a very special movie for me. I mean, there were a lot of epic films uh, 
over the years, especially during the roadshow period where they were making these three-hour movies to compete with television films like The Ten Commandments and Ben-Hur. Uh, but Spartacus is just a magnificent film for its script, the direction by Stanley Kubrick, that cast, Kirk Douglas, Gene Simmons, Laurence Olivier. And then you have Alex North's music, which is just a legendary score that builds and builds. And one of the first linchpins of the movie is this terribly desperate fight to the death between Spartacus and Draba, one of his fellow gladiators. And they've come to respect one another. And yet the last thing they want to do is have to fight each other to kill each other. And Alex's music just adds such power to that scene as it gradually leads to its conclusion. So I'm just a big fan of that. And of course, all the music in Spider Spartacus is just amazing. It's just, it lends great majesty and importance to the story. And uh, I kind of miss the days when there were orchestral scores in films because we, we don't have them much anymore. And uh, this was a classic. I love I love the fact that you brought up the, the road show. It was um, I didn't realize it until you know I, I can't remember the date, but it was after I had already been into movies for a while that I learned about road show prints. And a lot of people think that you know the first stereo movies were Dolby Stereo, like Star Wars or something like that. No, no, there were movies made years earlier that were stereo, and they were and they were part of the so called quote, roadshow uh, prints. And they would have overtures, you know, all the movies you just listed. And, and it, was, it was just fabulous. It really added to the entire experience. So oh, yeah. I concur with you. Go ahead. I, I was just going to say that, uh, you know, roadshow movies would open in one theater in your in your city. I mean, it wasn't a wide yeah. a Friday release or wide Wednesday release. I mean, they opened with a lot of fanfare. I remember the first roadshow movie I ever saw was John Wayne's The Alamo. Ah. It debuted at the Carthay Circle, which was a big movie palace in L.A. with big giant photographs of the cast. And. Oh, my God. I mean, I was, let's see, I was probably eight or nine. And to see the Alamo with all of that, that epic action, uh, you know, is, was amazing. And then two years later, in the same theater and on the same roadshow kind of format, I saw The Longest Day, Daryl F. Sanek's great movie about the D-Day invasion. Yeah, I mean, the, <laughs> you and I are a couple of old farts. We can, we can, we can go back and kind of reminisce about that. But I, it's a shame. I, I don't think people can really appreciate these days what what that was like. It would be wonderful to see it come back. Well, oh sure. Anyway, without going down memory lane, let's let's at least experience this uh, cue that you talked about. This is from the film uh, Spartacus. It's a, a, a gladiator fight that happens pretty early on in the film, and it's written by the maestro. Alex North. Those who are about to die salute you.
How were you able to get my appointment without Gragas knowing? I fought fire with oil. I purchased the Senate behind his back. I still think the Trident's going to win. Hmm? I, uh, I noticed when I looked through your, your career that you've actually had quite a variety of roles uh, in motion pictures. And we already talked about the fact that you were a unit publicist, but it doesn't end there. You've, you've been a writer, a producer, a director. Um, I, I'm kind of curious, is there, is there one of those roles that you find more satisfying than another? Well, I think of myself as a writer-producer. I've directed a couple of documentaries, but my main focus the last 20 years has been uh, developing and producing uh, TV shows and films, uh, particularly uh, ones that I've written uh, with various partners. So I'm out there every day as my day job in Hollywood trying to get some traction on our projects. And I have a great deal of fun writing. Uh, I've been blessed to write with two wonderful partners. I write animation with my good friend, David Miller, who's a wonderful filmmaker. And I write comedy with my good friend, Billy Reback. Uh, and he's one of the funniest men I've ever met. So I'm out there 
Uh, we have over 30 projects and we're out there really every day trying to find traction and sell these projects. And uh, I've come full circle. You know, I started writing about movies as a as a youngster, uh, uh, you know, into my 20s. And then I promoted people's movies for 30 years. And now the last 20 I've been involved in the actual production. I've produced three films uh, and, and two docs. Um, I had a lot of fun with a baseball comedy for Showtime called Bleacher Bums, which my friend Mitch Paradise wrote. And uh, then we did a World War II drama, uh, which my friend Roger Elward wrote. I produced it with his brother Rory. It's a true story of a truce in the Ardennes Forest on Christmas Eve 1944 when German and American troops uh, actually uh, entered a cabin and a German woman held a truce for 10 hours. And wow. I, yes. Oh, wow. Silent Night. It was a, a evergreen for the Hallmark Channel. We're very proud of it. It was nominated for four Canadian TV Academy Awards. And then I was, David Miller and I were involved in a teen dramedy called My Suicide, uh, which won the Berlin Film Festival in 2009. It's a a great story of a young man's journey through the, the through the suicide announcement he makes in his film class. He's going to film his own suicide. And it was a, a movie that was so effective that young people who were on the edge of, of living, who were literally thinking of committing suicide, watched our movie and came back. Wow. That, that must, that must be, gosh, I don't even know how to describe that. I must be, I don't know what the word is gratifying or uh, rewarding or, you know, well, to, to hear that sort of result from your work. I mean, that must be something amazing. We knew we were on to something because early on in the interviewing process for our research, we interviewed Edwin Schneidman, who is uh, one of the great uh, heroes of that world. Uh, when you do something in suicide prevention every year, you win the Schneidman Prize. So he told us we had a great concept for a movie early on. So we knew we were on to something. And the movie was ter terrifically gratifying for us. But more importantly, just knowing that we were able to bring kids back from the brink just made it all just made it all important. And I, I'm very happy with that picture. And it's, by the way, anybody who wants to see it, it's it's a perennial on Netflix. I, I think they have it under current license and it's called My Suicide. Excellent. Yeah. Please, please check it out. It sounds like it's fascinating. Um, I, I, I find it, fa you know, you're one of the few guests that we've had, and I mean, this as a compliment that has really gone back to the, the so-called golden age of, uh, of Hollywood composers. And here's another example. We're going to listen to you know, one of the cues that you chose was written by, uh, by Max Steiner. This is from the film, I guess it's called Rocky Mountain. Uh, would you be so kind to kind of tell us a little bit about what went into your thinking about uh, choosing this for your favorites? You know, when people think about Errol Flynn, they certainly gravitate towards the adventures of Robin Hood, Seahawk. Uh, they died with their boots on. Um, this was one of his uh, more obscure films. It's from 1950. I think I discovered it on a Saturday morning uh, show uh, locally in L.A. called Action Theater. It's interesting because some people would call it more of a programmer. It's not, a, you know, not a classic Western, but it has one of the most uh, riveting endings for any Errol Flynn movie you've ever seen. And I would highly recommend checking out Rocky Mountain. Um, the overture, which you're going to hear, is 
kind of standard uh, Warner Brothers. It's kind of low key. Uh, but if you if you get to see Rocky Mountain, you're going to find that uh, Max's music is adds a, another dimension to this movie. Um, you know, in these times, stories about Confederates are certainly out of favor and certainly wouldn't be considered PC. But uh, there's a certain um, how do I describe it? There's a certain wistfulness about the Confederate side at the end of the war. I mean, they're losing. The war is going to be over soon. These guys are essentially yeah. on a suicide mission. There's no way they're going to get anybody to believe them. And yet um, they, they're battling and they save a woman in the process. And, and it creates all sorts of interesting conflicts. But um, And they're also bat- battling Indians. And uh, it's an interesting concept. It was very well directed, I believe, by William Dieterle. And um, it's one of my favorite films. And like The Mountain Road we talked about earlier, the Jerome Moraz score, this is a movie that is tremendously helped by its musical score. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's have a listen to this. This is the overture from the film that's called Rocky Mountain, and it's written by one of the most prolific and famous composers of Hollywood, especially in its early days, the maestro Max Steiner.
you talked about, um, I always admire people like yourself and I, and I, I guess to a lesser extent, I'm in the same boat. So that's why I always like to kind of learn from people like yourself. You're basically self-employed and, and, and you have to go out and promote yourself or promote your projects and those sorts of things. So I'm, I'm kind of curious, is there, is there a way that you can kind of give us an appreciation for what's involved for, for getting a project off the ground? Cause I'm, you know, you need to find financing. You need to find money in order to put this thing together in it. That's got to be incredibly difficult. Well, it's funny you should mention financing because I tried for about 10 or 15 years to get involved in looking for money, which is, of course, a pet phrase in Hollywood. Uh, <laughs> it was only as good as your source of financing. And I I went up all the, the usual wrong alleys and, and met most of the charlatans in this town, and it discouraged me in many ways. I'm, I'm kind of foregoing that right now because I think that there are enough buyers out there with all the networks, the streamers. Uh, there's enough companies looking for good material uh, the key phrase today is called packaging. You know, you certainly don't send a screenplay to a company by itself. You usually have to find the director and perhaps one of the actors who's interested, uh, which presents a challenge on its own kind, because basically, uh, why would they want to be a part of your project if you're not paying them right off the bat? I mean, essentially, everything is on spec, trying to attach people and see if they're interested so that I could go to Netflix or Hulu or Amazon or whatever and say, I've got this script, I've got this director, I've got this actor. So it's a it's a constant shell game. I think that uh, the, you know, there are thousands of people trying to do this and, uh, it's, it's challenging, but we, we, um, we take baby steps and we have a new manager. We're very excited about her and she's taking one of our projects into the marketplace. So, you know, uh, I was born an optimist, Frank, I, I get up every morning. I put my two feet on the ground. I think positive things are going to happen today. And that's my credo. If it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen today, but I keep thinking it's going to happen someday, and I, I believe that. My gosh, and the, and and certainly the the business that you're in, you you got to be that way. I mean, just there's there's no two ways about it. You've got to be that way. Um, I, I I love this next cue that you had wanted to, to share. Uh, again, a famous composer from the from the golden age, Bernard Herrmann. Uh, this is from the film Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. Talk to us a little bit about uh, how that made your list of favorites, because I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Well, um, when you think of special effects in movies today, obviously with a digital world, we have like the Aladdin's lamp of abilities to to make things happen. Back in the day, going all the way back to 1950s America, there was a gentleman named Ray Harryhausen. And Ray was, uh, I think he studied under the guy who made the original King Kong, Willis O'Brien. I think he even worked on the original King Kong as an assistant. And Ray brought together his abilities in the late 50s uh, with various names. I think one of them was Super Dynamation, but he was a stop motion guy. He created creatures using the technique of one frame at a time, stop motion. And uh, I think I was probably seven when I saw Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. And talk about a wondrous Saturday afternoon adventure. I mean, it's just, mm. it's just a great story. Kerwin Matthews plays Sinbad. 
Catherine Grant plays Parissa. You had the great character actor Torin Thatcher as Sakura the Magician. And then you've got these creatures. You've got cyclopses and dragons, skeletons that come to life. I mean, uh, I, <laughs> I mean, talk about uh, just a major hunk of movie to get sink, sink, sink your teeth into. Adding to the wonder of this movie is Herman's score. Now, obviously, Bernard Herman is well known to film fans as being kind of a Hitchcock guy. You know, he added right. immeasurably to the Hitchcock films. But when he got into, fan, I mean, he hooked up with uh, the producers who worked with Harryhausen. And I would say his fantasy films of the 50s and 60s are just as exciting as his Hitchcock work. And uh, mm. I think the score for The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad is just a magnificent score and very clever and creative. The fight we're going to hear between Sinbad and the skeleton that comes to life in Torrin Thatcher's, Sakura's uh, cave fortress on the island of Colossa is just amazing. Just amazing. All right. Well, hey, you've done a great job of selling it. Let's have a listen for ourselves. This is from the film Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. And it's written by, again, another incredible composer from the golden age of Hollywood, Bernard Herrmann.
been through a, a rather interesting time in, in, in for lack of a better way of saying it an interesting time in Hollywood in other words I'm suspecting that you've seen incredible change take place uh, over the years about uh, you know how projects are made and uh, just, just everything about the filmmaking process and you know and and now you've got uh, just my own observations. I, you know, I'm not an expert. You, you perhaps are. You've got a, a, a huge demand for content because you've got so many more distribution channels available than ever dreamed of before. So uh, things must have really changed in Hollywood. And so I'm really curious from your perspective, because you are someone that tries to, to get things made and that sort of thing. How, how has Hollywood changed? That's a very good question. Um, Frank, I think that Hollywood has not changed for the better as far as I'm concerned. I don't think the movies are as good as they used to be in many ways. Um, mm -hmm. I think that uh, I, I don't want to denigrate any of my fellow filmmakers because I think anybody who gets a film made deserves to have a candle lit for them because of the process. But I, I have to say that I think cinema has gotten too dark. I think that a large proportion of movies that are made each year are well-made, but they're very dark movies. Now, I, frankly, my personal opinion is that we need more fun in the movie business. And I'm talking, and part of the reason I've been kind of gravitating towards comedy, I mean, I always point to three films of the last 30 years that stand out to me. One is Ghostbusters. One is Back to the Future, and one is Night at the Museum. These are mm. family comedies that just take you on an amazing ride. 
and they're just fun movies. Now, arguably, we still have fun movies. I mean, Iron Man, Superman, Batman, Spider-Man, all the mans and all of the other <laughs> are, are out there. But uh, that's kind of a separate genre. And I, I kind of uh, those movies are com- incredibly complex and they're very successful. They're they're kind of what Martin Scorsese says, Scorsese says is, a, is our thrill rides in many ways. But I want I want to see more fun in Hollywood, and I think that uh, we get a, a, a few each year. But I don't know. I, I feel that the the movie business has gotten too dark in terms of storylines. And you you when I go to the movies, I'm sure this is true of you as well. I want to be transported away from my real world in certain ways. I want to get away yes. from the daily troubles, and I think I go back to the beginning of cinema. When, you know, Charlie Chaplin, whether it's Errol Flynn or Gary Cooper or Ginger Rogers and, you know, Fred Astaire. I mean, those were movies that catapulted you to a world you didn't know. And you just had fun. You came out of the theater dancing with your feet up. I mean, I would have loved to have seen Singing in the Rain in 1952 when it first came out, because I probably would have jumped out of that seat afterwards and sang or danced my way down. <laughs> and I, I miss that. And I think that um, I think audiences, uh, well, certainly audiences have been gravitating to television for obvious reasons, because nobody can go to the movies right now. But I think that uh, I think more fun needs to be inserted in Hollywood. Uh, I think that um, uh, to a certain extent, I think movies are dealing too much with the real world. Now, again, there are important reasons to deal with the real world. I mean, I produced one of those pictures, My Suicide, which dealt with the the, uh, the kind of horror of teen suicide and it made an important uh-huh. point and an impact. And there is a place for those movies, but I also think there's uh, a need for escapist entertainment, not necessarily a superhero movie, but just something that's a lot of fun and entertaining. And that's what I'm looking forward to producing as part of my career. Wow. I mean, you, you know, I... I hadn't really thought of it, but you just really, you just nailed it from my perspective. I, now I, now I can finally express what it is I've been trying to express. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, that was one of the reasons why I love the, uh, quite frankly, why I love the early Bond films. I mean, you know, we, I didn't worry about what Bond was thinking about, you know, his trauma of killing people or anything. You know, it was just, it was, it was good fun it was just fun it was adventure and yeah there was a few jokes thrown in and and but i mean it was i'm probably not expressing it very well but it took me away i didn't think about anything going on in the world other than what was happening with bond at the time the last thing i need to see is someone brooding about a lost love and and the fact that he got screwed by a a, you know someone else and I got enough of that in my own life. I don't need to see it in the movies. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, people go to the movies. Well, at least they used to in the days when we went to the movies, and hopefully we'll be back there soon. But you go to the movies for an adventure. I mean, mean, the term popcorn movie really applies to that kind of movie where you're sitting there riveted to the screen. And all your great filmmakers, your Steven Spielbergs, your Joe Dantes, your... Christopher Nolan's, your James Cameron, they all grew up on going to the movies on Saturday afternoon and seeing two features. And you had a lot of popcorn and you drank a lot of Coke and (laughs) really had a lot of fun at the movies. And you came skipping out of there just so inspired. You wanted to get the 
you know, you wanted to get an article about the movie in a magazine. You wanted to maybe collect a still or two. And certainly with me going out and getting the soundtrack album from the movie. I mean, the Alamo, you know, I saw that movie, the Alamo, all those years back. The the Alamo was the first soundtrack album I ever bought. I mean, Tiamkin, that great composer, Dimitri Tiamkin, his score for the Alamo, another classic score. I loved that album. I played it until it practically uh, disintegrated. (laughs) And back in the days when you couldn't just you know, slip in a DVD or a VHS or whatever and watch it again. The only way you could relive the movie was to listen to the soundtrack. So, well, I took it one more step because I had a hobby in those days, which I continue today and you'll laugh, but basically back in the day, back in high school, I managed to buy a reel to reel tape recorder from a friend of mine and I would put the microphone up to the TV. <laughs> I would, I would yeah. tape my favorite movies. And I, yeah. I, I, you know, obviously as technology improved, I was able to do a direct import taping. So I, you know, I was able to get a better quality audio, but I grew up and that's part, part of my fascination with movies. I was listening to the whole movie, not just the music from the soundtrack album. I'd have the whole movie and it, it's actually informed me as a screenwriter because listening to great dialogue over and over again, you begin to learn cadence and and really the quality that you want your characters to speak. And it's been very informative, but it, it also brought me early on very much aware of film music and just the soaring, the soaring scores of the day back in the 60s. I still remember... Um, Basil Dearden score, I believe it was Basil Dearden, yeah, for um, Khartoum, the Charlton Heston film from 1966. I remember one of the first movies I taped, and it has a really rousing, rousing, wonderful score. That's another one of those epic roadshow movies toward the end of the roadshow era, but just great. Yeah, I'm glad to know I'm not the only one. I can remember going to a drive-in cinema, a drive-in theater, uh, whatever you want to call it, several times for different movies. My listeners know I'm a huge John Barry fan. So I would, I, I can remember going in to, uh, to see it at a drive-in Moonraker and King Kong, because I knew that the soundtrack, the albums didn't have all the music. So I would sit there with my, my cassette recorder and a microphone, and hold it up to the speaker so that I could get all that additional music. So I, it's, it's satisfying to know I wasn't the only person that did that. <laughs> it was it was exciting for me a few years ago when, you know, because we talked earlier about Jerome Ross and the big country. I had that album, but the album only had about 30% of the music and a couple, yeah. a couple of the key cues, including the one we played earlier, uh, weren't on the album. So when the, D, the uh, CD came out with the whole score, I was I put it in and I was I was standing there listening to this music. For essentially the first time, I'd never heard the whole score. And uh, it's just great having that access to that. And we're very fortunate today that all this great music is still around and that we can tap into it if we want it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I I, I love your phrase, popcorn movies, which I think leads us to the the, uh, the next two cues I want to play that you had uh, chosen. Uh, Because they're both from the... uh, uh, they're both from the uh, oh goodness Lord of the Rings uh, films. One is uh, written by its composer Howard Shore. The cue is called Return of the King. But there's also 
I don't know if you want to call it a song or not, but it, it, Liv Taylor is is the voice that you hear on it. Uh, forgive me, because I don't know if I can read my writing. Was it Houses of Howling? Is that what it's called? I, I'm going to actually look it up myself because um, I have it on my phone. I think it is. I, I want to say it's called Houses of the Holy, but I have to look it up because um, I don't want to get it wrong. Right. But I, I, I thought I'd play those back to back because they're apparently from the fa- same film series. And uh, I'm trying to think maybe I could look it up, too. Um, OK, it's called actually you're right. It's called The Houses of Healing. Healing. OK. Yeah, H-E-A-L-I-N-G. And uh, I picked, well, you know, Howard Shore's music for The Lord of the Rings was such a breath of fresh air. Oh, my goodness. You uh. know, uh, not only was it wonderful to have an orchestral score, but oh, my God, what an evocative score. I would argue that, well, for me personally, it's my favorite score of the last 20 years. I mean, I just... Uh, uh, I play it a lot, and uh, I, I wasn't even aware of this one cut, this Houses of Healing, until one day I was watching the movie, and I began to realize that we're hearing Liv Tyler. Um, you know, she's she's she plays a character in um, uh, in the uh, movie. She plays the elven princess who's involved with uh, Viggo Mortensen's character Aragorn, and. Um, uh, she, she, uh, is, is, well, she's a, she's a great singer in her own hand, but I, I think yeah. what's happening in this scene is that, um, the Faramir character, who's the Prince of Gondor has been hurt in the battle of Pelennor field. So he's recuperating in the Gondor castle. And a person who's also been hurt is Eowyn, the princess of Rohan. So both of them are recuperating and looking out the window kind of wistfully after the battle and they discover one another. So there's kind of a there's kind of a connection they have uh, at that point. And it's not a long cue, but uh, it's a it's a, a wonderful kind of uh, emotional cue. And it certainly uh, lives voice adds kind of a, a nice quality to the whole thing. So I, I, it's one of my favorite cues in the whole score. Yeah. And I and I find it interesting because we've gone from essentially all 1950s to almost almost present day with this particular score that you that really apparently impacted you so that's that's great that's great not a problem so let let's listen there's two of them here we're going to listen to houses of healing which has a, a vocal by Liv Tyler but also listen to a cue called return of the king and it's written by the composer that uh, I think worked as I recall in all three films Howard Shore, sit back, relax, and enjoy.
I know someone that's in your position never, they've always got something in the fire. So I'm kind of curious, what, uh, are there any kind of current projects that you would care to share with us that, uh, things you're working on that maybe we can look forward to seeing in the future? I'm working on a lot of different things. Um, one of my favorite films of the 1950s was the autobiography of Audie Murphy, the World War II hero. And uh, I, which, which is an amazing film because Audie Murphy is essentially playing himself, which in biography, film biographies never happened. So I thought it was kind of unique. Uh, I'm developing a miniseries, uh, probably an eight-part miniseries with my good friend Arthur Friedman. Uh, we've acquired the rights to his biography, No Name on the Bullet, by Don Graham, a wonderful uh, author from Texas. And so we're developing that as an eight-part uh, with two uh, young writers who happen to be veterans. And I'm very excited about that. But I've also been uh, writing, as I mentioned earlier, I've been writing comedy. And uh, we have some fun stuff coming up. Uh, we're currently packaging a comedy called Camp Funny Kids which is basically, I, I would call it School of Rock for Young Comics. And it's about a down-as-luck comedian whose only job he can get is teaching comedy to 12-year-olds at a camp <laughs> on the East Coast. So it's, it's cute. It's cute. It's really about a bunch of kids learning how to do stand-up comedy. I'm very excited about that project. And a ton of other things. I mean, I, as, they, as they become more real, I will certainly get back in touch with you. We can talk about it. Well, and and so how if uh, people are interested, how can they, uh, how can they follow your adventures as you continue through this process? Uh, do you have like you know an Instagram account or Facebook or whatever? I do have. I have an Instagram, Steve Rubin, R U B I N. I have a Facebook connection, also Steve Rubin. I have a page for the James Bond movie encyclopedia in Facebook. I also have a page for the Twilight Zone encyclopedia in Facebook. Ah. Uh, and uh, I'm also on LinkedIn, uh, Steve Rubin. And uh, yeah, I love to I love to uh, keep in touch with the fans because you know I learn great things from them. I, I and I get feedback and stuff on projects. Uh, I'm definitely out there. Uh, and again, I can't emphasize enough. If you're look, if you're a fan of films first, but also happen to be a fan of James Bond films, I cannot recommend his book highly enough. It's just fabulous, really, with a lot of great behind-the-scenes information and uh, rare, uh, rare pictures and things like that. I can only imagine, and I'm a Twilight Zone fan as well. Maybe I need to check that book out as well. It wouldn't surprise me that that's also a fabulous, uh, a fabulous book that you need to look at as well if you're a fan of Twilight Zone, which is, I mean, gosh, what can you say about it? I mean, that was just an incredible show. I just, I could talk for hours about that as well, so... Well, that's great. That's great that you've got all that stuff going on. Well, thank you. I mean, the Twilight Zone Encyclopedia was born out of a need to get the the the, the word out on the wonderful people involved in the series, particularly the actors, because many of them are not the high profile actors who get their own biography. Mm. I mean, I mean, what can you say about Burgess Meredith and Jack Klugman? I mean, these, mm. these are two wonderful actors. Each of them did four four Twilight Zones and. And I wanted to. I wanted people to know about these guys and and the women too. And I think that uh, I was inspired by Mark Sacre's book. He did the Twilight Zone Companion back in the eighties, and I felt that there was an opportunity to get a different kind of book going, especially where we could tout all the episodes and the people who made them. And, and, and Rod Serling, it, 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 the, 
I, trust me, I'm not anywhere close to being an expert, but I, I just remember seeing a lot of information about him and learning more about his, his life and, and the work that he did. What an amazing writer that, uh, uh, gosh, and so tragic that he left us so young. I mean, he was just, he was an amazing writer of not only things that were entertaining, but but think you know stories that had messages and and really great insight. It was, it was absolutely phenomenal. Very true. In fact, um, of the 156 original Twilight Zones, and my book, by the way, only covers the originals, the black and whites. Um, I, I have, I've always felt, I, again, I, I, I certainly honor the people who've tried to revive the series, including, including Jordan Peele, who has the current incarnation on CBS. But once you put a Twilight Zone in color, you lose about half the atmosphere. So that's, <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. <laughs> but, uh, the book is uh, is designed to give you is kind of fill you in on everybody involved and give you as much behind the scenes information as I could collect. Well, look, Stephen, I gosh, I can't even begin to thank you for taking the time to uh, to talk with us today. For our audience, you know, hopefully you won't be able to figure it out, but this has actually been several weeks, several attempts in the making of putting this program together. So. Uh, Stephen has been incredibly patient with helping us kind of put this together. And so I, I can't thank you enough. I thoroughly have enjoyed talking with you and getting to know you a little bit better and, and hearing some of this incredible music that you've chosen. I, uh, I've had a great time. I hope you've enjoyed it as well. Very much, Frank. You're a consummate interviewer, and I really enjoyed the questions and sharing my passion with someone who's obviously a kindred spirit of mine. Oh, thank you. That. Coming from you, that means a great deal, and I, I couldn't be more sincere about that. Thank you. Uh, listen, folks, that's that's going to about wrap it up for us today. Uh, again, I want to thank our patrons who uh, continue to support the program, and if you're interested, uh, perhaps you heard the message in the middle of the program, uh, please try and support the program if you can. We'd be most grateful for that. Uh, really, I guess, other than that, there's only one thing left to say, and that's simply this, that my name is Frank R. Wilson. My time is up. I thank you for yours. Thanks for listening to What's the Score.